this is our first of our 2021 ASCO GU um, updates on, on the presentations that are being performed. And we're joined today by, uh, by my great friend, um, Neil Shaw. Uh, Neil, do you want to introduce yourself and then just talk a little bit about the study you're presenting? Uh, yeah, thank you, uh, um, Tom and, and Brian. Uh, what a great um, opportunity to speak with uh, the, on the Euromigos podcast. <laughs> thank you for the branding. I, yeah, love, I love the branding, love the name. It, it certainly beats Medonk Amigos. <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's true, Neil. We, 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 <laughs> and I, for the audience, Neil had an idea of a Euromigos tequila, much like Casamigos. So stay tuned for that. Absolutely. I think of Tom as being maybe you too, Brian. You guys are like sort of the George Clooney's of. of, of <laughs> Neil, you must come on this show more often. <laughs> yeah, seriously. Yeah. So, um, what a, what a pleasure to uh, you know to present some of this uh, you know data on the Aramis trial and and uh, I, I would be remiss if I didn't thank all of the my, the co um, authors and and in particularly our good friend and colleague Kareem Fazazi. Um, uh, who is the, the, the lead PI on this, and also uh, Matthew Smith, uh, you know, two really just remarkable gentlemen who've done so much for geo-oncology and particularly, uh, you know, recently in advanced prostate cancer. Um, just a quick, a quick little segment about it. Uh, I got really interested in, in, in darolutamide back in the day when I first learned about it, when it was with uh, Orion or Orion Pharmaceuticals before Bayer got involved. And I think Kareem and I were both really intrigued, as was Matthew, because of the really unique um, organic molecular structure of darolutamide. And, and what was particularly fascinating about it was how it, 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 the size of the molecule, there, there's, there are some interesting aspects in terms of its organicity, its polarity, and, and the fact really that it, it had a very minimal uh, um, across uh, of the blood-brain barrier in preclinical models. This was very appealing because back in the day when we were doing the early phase studies, Aridays, Arafors, that Kareem really championed, that I, I helped along with those accruals, we never excluded patients who had any history of seizure because of the lack of blood-brain barrier penetration. And you know, once we got into the Aramis uh, uh, trial, which has now led to its regulatory pathway for approval, it became really uh, abundantly clear that this is a, 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 a very well tolerated AR pathway inhibitor drug. So, so Neil, before you go into your crossover data, do you want to just give high level summary of Aramis, which is, of course has been published and presented, but just for the audience? Yes. Thank you. So yeah, this was, uh, you know, uh, like the other um, NMCRPC trials, um, you know, a, a very large uh, a two to one randomization in fact, I think the Aramis had the largest accrual population, the largest uh, you know, uh, population accrued. And at the end of the day, similar primary uh, endpoint of metastasis-free survival. Um, the MFS uh, was, was uh, achieved. Uh, and that's a co-primary endpoint, as, as you both know, of, of RPFS, essentially, and overall survival. Uh, that led to the, a New England Journal paper with Kareem as the first author. And then uh, ultimately, when we uh, did a, a subsequent analysis, and today's GU ASCO uh, poster, which I'm going to review with you, we actually have an oral uh, presentation on it coming up, uh, was um, uh, demonstrated the overall survival benefit uh, with a, a hazard ratio of, of 0.69. Uh, 
And, and so it's really that led to a second uh, New England paper. So uh, I, I think that um, what's interesting now is we have, fortunately, uh, throughout mo much of the world, three AR pathway inhibitor drugs for patients with NMCRPC, which is a rising PSA, castrate level of T, conventional imaging, technetium bone scan, CT scan, doesn't show any imaging positivity. And I think for many of our colleagues, it was really great to see that all three trials, inclusive of Aramis, led to a statistically significant OS benefit. So it wasn't just starting patient on drug, lowering the PSA, maybe delaying RPFS for sure, uh, but uh, you know, creating what some would describe as just a, a lead time by no, indeed by finding these patients earlier, treating them earlier, um, we, we prolong their survival. Uh, Neil, what's the medium follow-up of the study, and are there any new safety updates associated with it? Yeah, thank you. We do have at, at ASCO GU, um, there is a, a, a separate poster uh, uh, in addition to this crossover poster where, where this crossover data that I'm the first author. We have another um, presentation, and I think Kareem is the first author. I could be wrong about that. Wouldn't surprise me. I'm wrong about a lot of things. Um, but we do have long-term safety data that had been uh, previously described at, at ESMO 2020 and some additional uh, long-term safety data. What I really like about this drug is there's only one side effect of all of the typical side effects that we uh, interrogate you know, using MEDRA dictionary definitions that was over 10%, and that was fatigue. Um, 13 uh, versus an 8% in the control placebo arm, 13% in the, uh, the Darrow uh, arm, 8%. And there was nothing that was uh, garnered more than a 10% uh, uh, um, uh, AR percentage. And when we looked across the board uh, for long-term safety analyses, falls, fractures, hypertension, um, cognitive impairment, it really essentially balanced with the control placebo arm. And I, I really think- And Neil, these folks are on drug for a while, correct? With the median duration so, of treatment? So uh, this was basically the median duration of treatment for the survival that what I'll be presenting is the median was about 11 months, but for the overall totality of the trial was about three years. Got it. And, and, and Neil, if the, uh, in terms of the outlook of this group of patients now, I guess there's two questions that someone like me who treats a bit of prostate cancer um, would ask is, the first is, is there any real differences? Because I know that there was dase also with apalutamide, which seemed to have a similar survival signal and endolutamide. Are there, are there more similarities and differences between these drugs? Is there one that we, you think we should be choosing you know, what, what's the right answer to, to that difficult question? Because I guess when there's choice, people have to, in the end, you have to make a choice. Yeah, it's a very frequently asked question. It's a very appropriate, reasonable question coming from... It's unusual for time. Yeah, Neil, we don't have, yeah. we haven't had one of those before unusual. for years, actually. <laughs> so inappropriate most of the time, which is why we all love it. So it's brilliant. brilliant and inappropriate, which is perfect. Um, uh, having said that, uh, you know, yeah. you're absolutely right. You know, discounting um, cost and accessibility, I think all three of these drugs, enzalutamide, apalutamide, darolutamide, are, are excellent. They clearly achieve what we want them to achieve, uh, prevent uh, a tumor progression, they lower PSA, 
in, in the vast majority of patients rather significantly, which has psychic benefits, obviously, for patients, their families, and for our colleagues. But more importantly, is slowing down disease progression and, and, and prolonging survival. I think they, I would not make a claim that one has greater efficacy than the other. I think all three are, 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 are marvelously efficacious. I, I do think that with more experience, um, our colleagues will, will, will tr try to further delineate tolerability and, and side effect profiles. There are uh, several prospective uh, comparator trials that are ongoing. Um, uh, I, I've done some work previously with Susan Hallaby at Duke. And we've, we've looked at some modeling to, of the published data, and uh, we actually presented that at ASCO 2020. We have a publication that has been submitted to look at that. It's, you know, it's indirect comparisons with, with all the typical caveats. Um, you know, it, the good news is we have a bit of a plethora of, of riches if we can, you know, get access to them globally, this is, which isn't always the case, which is still a daunting issue. But I think uh, for many patients, as we always do, we, we think about their comorbidities and their concerns regarding safety, uh, whether it's fatigue, whether it's cognitive impairment, whether it's a risk of fall, whether they already have some uh, poorly controlled hypertension, uh, do they have any kind of rash proclivities? And I, I do believe that these are the types of things that our, our colleagues and patients need to, to better understand. I really do think um, the, there's a couple of really important points, not really uh, captured in, in this, this uh, ASCO GU poster about the crossover, but the, the whole era now of both cardio-oncology and neuro-oncology, I think are so important to, to have us be better uh, uh, managers of, of all types of cancers. So Neil, it sounds like relatively equal efficacy dealer's choice based on tolerability or familiarity, maybe as much as anything. Is that fair? I think that is fair. And I think getting real world yeah. experience, getting uh, some additional prospective comparator studies is going to be really important. Uh, Neil, what have we got from a biomarker perspective with these drugs and wh which direction is that going in? Uh, is there, a, is there a, an opportunity to look at biomarker research in these big trials and what might it teach us? Well, that's a really great question. Um, you know, I think oh, two in one podcast, yeah. Tom. That's God, you're, you're unbelievable. The park, Mark right? the date. So, so uh, you know, of course, biomarkers and, and trying to better understand how we can personalize uh, treatment decision making. I am not aware that there is any specific uh, gene alteration or having to do with specific um, AR receptor uh, variants. There has been some some work that has been published on this that there might be a signal for greater um, uh, um, uh, um, sensitivity, uh, but I still think that that's early days. I think, you know, as we learn more and more and so many of our colleagues start to do more uh, genomic sequencing, uh, whether it's in, in liquid or, or tissue-based, I, I do think we will learn. I think right now from a practical standpoint, I, I think we're, we're still in, in the research um, mode. And now, what, what other data is in the abstract? The title implies as effective crossover. Because so, what, what did you see in the placebo patients who yeah. crossed over? So, you know, we had these four different um, sensitivity analyses, and they're they're a bit on the arcane side, I think, for many of our colleagues, myself included. Uh, honestly, um, they they are really kind of wonky in the in the concept of using a rank preserving structural failure time or 
RPSFT. Mm -hmm. It's a bit of a acronym mouthful. There's the IPE or the iterative parameter estimation uh, and, and two other sensitivity analyses where we, we, we use um, sensor data. I, I think that these are really great and they're interesting. I would certainly encourage uh, colleagues to look at them. We will publish this for going into a little bit more of the granularity of these analyses. But the, the conclusion pretty much says it all is that the overall survival um, um, uh, improvement was seen uh, clearly with darolutamide, the treatment arm over the placebo and uh, the effect of crossover, uh, which happened, uh, we, we, we allowed crossover three months after the uh, interim, uh, the first analysis. So from September to late November. Uh, and at the end of the day, the, the effect of the crossover using these four different sensitivity analyses was, was what we describe as small and dilutive meaning that there was a, a minimal impact of the crossover, which I think another way of thinking about it is that these survival uh, benefits are very real and, um, uh, and, and of value. So there wouldn't be reason to delay initiation of therapy, maybe in other yes. words, that when these non-metastatic patients become castrate resistant, that they should really go on to immediate therapy for maximal Absolutely. benefit. Absolutely, much better said than how I said, yeah. thank you. <laughs> Neil, well, look, that sounds really um, exciting. What goes on next for uh, for this space? It, it, are there other ongoing trials that you're that you're excited about reading out in the near future? Are there other combinations or for this um, non-metastatic castrate resistant population? Have we come as far as we're going to go? Yeah, I think the NMCRPC, uh, you know, sort of um, um, uh, idiosyncratic construct that we've all created because of the, uh, when I say we, I mean, you know, our, our you know, our healthcare um, colleagues, uh, due to the limitation of the sensitivity or the accuracy of conventional imaging, we're entering into this really remarkably uh, fascinating uh, next generation imaging, we call it NGI parts of the world are way ahead of uh, uh, my, my, my country, the U.S., because we haven't had the ability to have, uh, you know, ubiquitous, ubiquitous access to PSMA PET. I think that's going to change dramatically by the summer. Uh, other countries, Germany and Australia, parts of Latin America and other places have had PSMA PET gallium scans, which are clearly a superior uh, PET imaging. We've had fluciclovine or the accident scan. I think these scans mm -hmm. are going to clearly demonstrate that NMCRPC is, is a micrometastatic disease state. But um, you know some other really nice work that was done, uh, Fendler is the first author and Boris Hadishak is a senior author, <clears throat> looked at these NMCRPC patients and a 50, about 50% would have still been ideal candidates to enroll with, uh, with microscopic disease in the pelvis Another 50% may have had disease clearly on, on the PSMA um, gallium pets uh, outside the pelvis. Now, whether or not you would do anything about that differently is really hard to know, given that the, the, these same patients, these 200 patients in that, in that publication also had negative conventional imaging. So I think to answer your question, Tom, you know, imaging is, is going to be a, a really uh, a, a key change, I think, in 2021 for uh, our medical oncology, radi radiation oncology, nuclear medicine, and neuro uh, oncology colleagues to start to better understand 
the accuracy of what we're treating and why we're treating and when to treat. I think combination therapies are something I've always been particularly excited about. I think the area of theranostics uh, lends itself, these uh, radiopharmaceutical antibody conjugates lends itself remarkably well to uh, uh, AR pathway inhibitors such as darolutamide. I also think that the PARP inhibitor space where we can get really good appropriate uh, germline and somatic testing also uh, uh, could lend itself extremely well to combination trials with ARPIs such as darolutamide. Hey, you know, I just have one last question, then maybe we'll wrap up. Thanks for that summary. Um, I, I don't see that much prostate in my practice. How common are these, you know, NMCRPC patients in practice? Put aside the advanced imaging question, but just yeah, you know, that's conventional a good imaging. Question. You know, so, you know, there's various data depending upon prevalence uh, percentages. I think, uh, you know, you have to look for them. And, and I think it's a really important mm -hmm. question. And that historically, um, we, we, we would, um, we, 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 CRPC, I think, has really caused us to think more carefully and, and, and thoughtfully about, at the very least, checking testosterone levels, making sure that patients are being adequately treated with androgen deprivation therapy, and we're not just responding to PSA kinetics. So that's a good thing to come out of the NMCRPC population. Most of this population comes from the biochemical relapse or the PSA relapse population. The patients who unfortunately fail surgical removal or radiation to the primary, mm -hmm. and they go on to either intermittent continuous ADT. If you follow these patients closely enough on a regular basis, and you know everyone has their 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 um, regimen for what they think is closely enough, um, you can capture them early enough so that they're NMCRPC. So they are out there. But oftentimes, if we don't look for them, we will miss them, and then they'll show up with MCRPC. And I guess the way I look at it is that, that now you, we've missed an opportunity to treat someone with, with uh, three excellent drugs uh, that have you know, you know, pretty good safety tolerability profiles. Uh, I'm a little bit biased here arguing earlier that I think the Darrow has is, 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 is really got a really excellent safety profile. They're all effective in delaying disease progression and, 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 and creating and prolonging survival. So it, it really, it, it, the burden on all of us who treat these patients is to make sure we don't miss this opportunity and to, to look for them appropriately. Neil, that sounds that's fantastic. Thanks, Tom, I think that's uh, really, really interesting. And we're, we're out of time. So why don't, we, um, why don't we try and get together very soon, Neil? Uh, it's only around the corner, I'm sure. And uh, it's been fantastic to, uh, to chat today and, uh, and see you soon. And I, next Thanks, time Neil. I do appreciate it, I'll be it. wearing a sombrero. Good for you. <laughs> <laughs> Much appreciated. Cool. Thanks bye, for the bye, branding. Bye. All right. Bye. Uh,